This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this episode, we hear what happened when Nigel Dewar-Gibb, media industry lawyer at Lewis Silkin, called up Raoul Ramula, the CTO of Paper Chain. It's a technology company that helps copyright owners track and claim unpaid royalties. Raoul set up the business last year with his partner, Daniel Dewar. Listen in as they chat about the so-called black box royalties that remain unclaimed by artists and the role of blockchain in recording copyright material. They also discuss auditing performing rights organisations and the need for the odd legal scrap. The current Radiohead and Lana Del Rey copyright bust-up gets a mention too. And you'll hear why Raoul once sold everything he owned except a backpack and a guitar and set off to the UK. Rahul, it's very nice to catch up with you and have a chat and just see what you've been up to. So you just, you just come back from New York? Yeah, I had a two-week uh, trip to New York where I was there for a conference uh, called Nylon Connect. Uh, just gave a presentation of our like, company, spoke a little bit of what we did and the roadmap. Basically, I'm a, I founded this company called Paper Chain with another uh, business partner uh, over a year, uh, year and a half ago. Um, and I'm the chief technology officer for, for this company, uh, more as a startup at this moment. Uh, and what we've been doing is uh, we've been focusing on uh, royalty collection and uh, specifically on unpaid and unclaimed royalties in the music industry that are left on the table uh, without the knowledge of songwriters, record labels, uh, artists themselves. And we help them uh, identify, repatriate those uh, royalties back to these uh, guys through a series of uh, jump and uh <laughs> sounds a very noble endeavor I and mean, that's uh well you know it's, uh, it's something that's very close to my heart too yeah 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 i am a lawyer um i am involved, have been involved in what were traditionally the music industries music and media industries now probably known better better uh, regarded as the rights industries and um from my time in house with various record companies um i became very interested to know what was happening to the rights that were being exploited and what more particularly was happening to the revenues that were being generated. And of course, that's how we came to meet when I did a talk. And I think it was The Great Escape. Or I raised the topic of black box royalty revenues and where they might be and who was controlling them. And you approached me, we had a fairly interesting discussion, which has kind of led to this point here now. So you've got an operation, Paper Chain, with Daniel, who I've met as well. Um, obviously, you're now working with a startup. I mean, I'm obviously now working for a law firm, Lewis Silken. From my point of view, it's an interesting initiative now to see the various parties that you need to have involved in this business if we're going to try and overcome some of the problems that are inherent in it. And by that, I mean, in the media industry, we're under attack, technology is driving it, there's advantages to it all, rights are being used and exploited, revenues are being generated, is all the income going to the right people, who's complaining, who's happy, where's it all going? Absolutely. Uh, it's the crux of what I've been uh, doing for the last two years. <laughs> so uh, to simplify the whole thing, rights, owning copyrights and exploitation of these uh, recordings or works uh, generate royalties back to the whoever owns these rights. This is like the simplifying uh, the world of uh, music royalties. Simple is good. 
simple is good however like if you take like a uh, it, it's a uh, a common misconception right like everyone thinks that oh if you wrote the piece of music uh, you must have recorded it as well which is not ideally the case in actuality like uh, people uh, record labels uh, work with artists artists work with other songwriters and they perform that and if you take a like a song like bohemian rhapsody that was written by freddie mercury this is uh, but right now if you, if you take a Ed Sheeran's uh, Shape of You, right? Uh, that, that's an interesting case. Uh, that was written by multiple songwriters. Uh, Ed Sheeran may have been one of the writers uh, in there. And uh, each writer obviously owns uh, a certain percentage of the song. And every songwriter has their own music publisher who has another slice of this pie. And uh, the record label itself of the artist has another slice of this pie. And between the music being consumed, say, on Spotify, and uh, the, the money generated and uh, made its way back to all these uh, creators, is a whole bunch of these intermediaries, licensing steps, organizations, all administrative fees, and everyone has a little uh, slice of pie. Unfortunately, the problem of, uh, of what we're speaking about is that all this uh, information of who owns how much percentage is uh, actually not available easily. It's uh, You would imagine there is no, it's hard to believe it, but there's no IMDB for uh, music. If There is not a central place where I can go and check who owns, uh, who are the actual writers and how much do they own. It's, it's very interesting for me, again, to get an analysis or an insight from somebody who's in the commercial side, looking at it from the data validation side, because for me, when I worked in-house, it was pre-digitization, physical formats, you could track them. You couldn't normally track the sale of physical formats by matching it to manufacturing records because you didn't get access. Now you've got intermediaries, as you say, in the system, which are collecting, let's say, for instance, the performing right income, and they're not auditable, which suggests to me that if, let's say, an organization in the UK collects in excess of 700,000, 700 million rather, in the UK annually, and it's not auditable, I think there's a problem there. So listen, um, are you looking at the trickle-down benefit? Is that what you're looking at? Are you saying you don't want the impoverished musicians there because they'll have no incentive to perform anymore? You want everybody to be enriched by the empires that are being built through music with the revenue shares, the ad spend, the ad agency income and all the rest of it. Yeah, uh, the problems that we spoke about, rights and royalties, uh, really gave the way... uh, for the technology of like blockchain why is it useful how can that solve the problem which is a an emerging technology and you can see the there, there is a huge resistance from industries uh, in general but music industry especially a lot of resistance from adopting uh to get uh, to really think about innovation from that perspective so uh the, that's the reason why we started paper chain like why is blockchain interesting and uh we wanted to uh figure out what were the underlying problems and how we can use the blockchain technology to solve that. It's, it's unproven at the moment, but it's certainly in an evolutionary stage, right? It, it is certainly uh, in a, a radically changing stage right now. I don't think many people get it, but there are a lot of people who who get it. I think it's, it's, it's similar to the age of... Uh, internet uh, in a way like 20 years ago i mean 93 internet was invented 95 hardly anyone knew about what to do with internet i think we're in the similar state of uh, affairs with dealing with blockchain taking a few steps back mm-hmm. um 
you've looked at the complexity, we've looked at the income that's been generated from the use. I'm not sure if we've actually specified it, but originally I think it was black box income. It was the unallocated, non-attributable income that was swilling around, if you will, unclaimed, so to speak, but managed and controlled by entities known or unknown. And that's got an interesting scenario because you look at the compliance issues there, you look at, well, how much is in there? And people used to say, I know all about it. I remember this vividly. I would go and speak to professionals and say, I'm going to investigate black box income. And they went, oh, you know, we know all about that. And you go, okay, how much is held by who, where, on what basis, and what's their distribution policy, and when does it kick in? It's, uh, it's such a fascinating uh, topic, right? This is, this is one of those... Uh gray areas in, in the music industry where a select few... It's a black area, Rahul. Yeah, it's a black area, for lack <laughs> right. of a better It's term. a black yeah. void. It's, it's a black hole. So recently we attempted to define what a black box uh, is in the music industry, uh, right? And you can tell me if, 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 this, is, if this sounds uh, aligned with... I can give you, you a know. legal definition. I can probably... <laughs> yeah. extract, no, we, pretty sure it'll still be very different um, uh, well, than mine. Well, I'm not going to recite mine word for word. <laughs> But there, there are, we, we do have contracts with definitions of black yeah. box and how it's uh, calculated and how it's allocated, but far away. So, so uh, here's what we arrived at. Uh, black box royalties are unallocated royalty funds held by organizations uh, due to non-identification of copyright owners of music. Uh, that's, uh, and this money is uh, held uh, typically in escrow accounts for a period of three years and uh, if yeah. if the if it's not claimed, uh, it's a, it's a job of the rights owners to proactively knock on that door and say, hey, that's my share. Uh, if they don't claim it, it's actually dispersed uh, within that organization's local members. Local being uh, uh, to the to the country. Uh, yeah, it's written back to revenue and then distributed amongst it, its membership. Exactly. So so this uh, uh, it, it's very interesting because uh, the artists or the copyright owners don't even know that uh, there is a black box. It's it's such a ethereal uh, concept, and there is very little information about. Where is it uh, uh, held? Who is it held by? Like, like to your points, and how can you? How can I actually check uh, if 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 I'm affected, and how do I actually retrieve it? And uh, we we with huge difficulty. Uh, we Are you facing able- obstruction in your activities? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, That's but it's uh, we were successfully able to find these royalties uh, that are belonging to other uh, uh, the rightful copyright owners, and we were able to uh, put the uh, the uh, the rightful owners to, to the to the royalties that were just staying there for like in escrow accounts, and uh, which 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 was a great success for us. Like it was a it, it was a, a proud moment that you know when our when we resolved our first cases of uh, this income uh, when we attached uh, this thing. And that was a matching process. Absolutely, yeah. So we uh, and this this mainly happens because uh, the attribution of who owns what is not available in a central place and song the record. So the information being passed from entity to entity, this is just completely lost and uh, there's money generated, but they don't know who to pay to. Uh, and it's it's large amounts of money and it's millions and millions of cases and uh, songwriters uh, being affected all over the world, all kinds of uh, 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 channels like radio, streaming, downloads, performance, uh, absolutely widespread. So if we're going to be more honest about it, are these new guys coming in with technological solutions to properly identify, match, report, and pay. The intention is there, uh, but 
but the actual feasibility on performing is so obstructed by the current infrastructure. So, so, you, so notwithstanding what they do, notwithstanding their best efforts, you think there's this big sort of monolith sitting on top of it that's going to say there, there, it's okay and not actually do the fundamental changes that we need. Exactly, exactly. Because for, for us to even, uh, even consider fixing this problem, it has to happen in so many layers. Uh, and uh, the the biggest argument is that, like, you know, for us to even solve this problem, like, we should just start afresh, just leave the old industry and uh, just let's run with the new That will leave a lot of disenfranchised and a lot of unhappy people. But it's interesting that you say that because there's a historical mess, there's the present which will continue to be a mess unless people work with various different skills and disciplines Mm -hmm. to refine it and sort it and fix it. And then moving forward, you need to make sure that it's not then corrupted again. But like I said, with the financial sector, the data processing sector, there's a lot of initiatives in there where... Through reliable, accurate, accessible monitoring technologies, if you will, those increments, those transactions are reported and it's paid through. I'm not saying they're in an ideal situation, but it's a lot more clear and transparent and workable than maybe what we've got at the moment. I mean, is anybody you'd pick out? I mean, there's, I remember being quite fascinated at the evolution of Cobalt, for instance. I mean, is there anything particular about their operations that you like or? I'm a big fan of Cobalt and how they rose up. They're a pretty big uh, major player right now. Um, it, it, I've seen them grow over the last, I think, uh, 17 years, I believe. Uh, they're they're huge right now, but I think uh, their premise, or at least if I remember correctly, initially was that they can collect more royalties for you. Yeah, uh, do a more accurate analysis. Competitors. Yeah. And how they went about, now, uh, again, greatly simplifying a strategy is they built in-house technologies, in-house systems that will analyze, collect this data and uh, figure out where your royalties are and and retrieve it. And now a lot of independent, smaller companies don't have teams of technologists sitting for them processing reports uh, trying to identify. And I I think uh, investing in the long term, investing in a company that uh, uh, in resources that would help you put all that together. Cobalt has uh, done tremendously uh, well uh, leveraging technology like that. But to your point, uh, are those all the royalties that they can be collecting? That's an interesting question to ask is because from our research and our studies, we saw royalties belonging to uh, big artists, medium-sized and new artists. And we found, and I'm pretty sure we found some of Cobalt's artists and songwriters uh, royalties too. The point is uh, the the royalties that are lost that are sitting in these black boxes, uh, the rights owners, including Cobalt, may not know that they're sitting there because nobody has access to it. And to your earlier point, transparency. How do we get the transparency? And uh, what does transparency mean? Like, uh, can we democratize the access of uh, the entire ownership of a copyright database of music to everyone who needs to uh, access it. Can we even do that? What is your expert legal opinion on uh, the situation of black box and okay. the legal implications of that? My view was, um, as a lawyer, and this might sound a bit righteous and forgive me, but if, if, if you sign a contract and you don't know what the consequences of that contract are from the point of view of the duration of the rights, the obligations, the reversion of the rights and the financial um, earnings, income that may flow from those, um, you shouldn't be signing those contracts. And it's a complex question to ask and you should get people to analyse it. So my view was 
there's a lot of unanswered questions to some of these deals. And in the wider picture, there's a lot of unanswered issues. How can you have an, an, an organization, the PROs, that collect performing right income and how can they not be auditable? That to me is a fundamental anomaly. They should be open and transparent. It's membership money. You should have access to membership data. Why aren't they subject to data subject access requests? Why don't you as a member have the ability to extract that information? Now I can imagine that people would not want dozens of agreed writers, and let's just talk about writers for instance, for, 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 for this example, that they would have a lot of writers asking for information and just clogging up the system. However, if we are instructed by certain clients and those clients, they come in and we ask them a very interesting question. We say to them, do you have a comprehensive copyright asset register, i.e. a comprehensive list of your works? And they look at me and they go, <laughs> and you go, oh, okay, do you know how many compositions, original works you've written? And they go, and we're talking about established writers here and I'm not being disrespectful. We eventually narrow it down and let's say it's 473. What we find actually, if you look at what's been licensed, licensed out on the, um, the DSPs or whatever it is, there are maybe three times that number of works because there's instrumentals, edits, Spanish language translation versions, karaoke versions, and you name it. These are all separate works than ISWC code. The point I'm making is that we investigate, we find problems, and then you're going to do, what, what, how are we going to resolve these problems? And sure, you can go into a discussion, a negotiation, most of it's blocked, as we discussed. Most of it's obstructed, as we discussed. Most of it, people don't really care, unless you're the person that's suffering the loss. And most of it don't want it to change because they are benefiting from a status quo, if you will. Now, for me, and I'm speaking for myself, um, if you have a public forum, namely a court or justiciary system, which you can avail yourself of, I don't see why you can't issue a claim if it's backed up properly with verifiable information extracted from source and say, we think we are, or you, you, you have, let's say, breached the contract, there's a breach of trust, uh, with, we are within the limitation period or whatever. Um, we found these, this shortfall and we'd like that money repatriated. And if you don't pay it, we'd like to sue for that, for, for that loss. We are at a stage now where I think more and more people are realizing that you can use the court system for the constructive purposes that it was designed for. I'm not interested in long-term litigation. I'm not interested really unnecessarily in enriching myself. I'm much more interested in getting clear answers to some of the issues that are here. And I'm sure that's what you're looking to do as well. It's, it's very interesting because uh, uh, the points you raised, uh, this gap uh, of uh, transparency or accessibility of uh, ownership or proof of ownership, that's missing, which is... Uh, which makes there it should so be a paper chain. There should be a, a logical <laughs> title, of, you know. So in comes the, this new age technology, right, called the blockchain, which promises uh, a proof of uh, ownership record that is completely immutable, which is uh, cryptographically secure. Nobody can hack it. Uh, and the premise is that, uh, uh, the promise is that, rather, uh, if we put uh, copyrights data on blockchain where it's transparent who owns what and organizations can access it including legal uh, legal infrastructures 
uh, and organizations like like Lewis Silken uh, to uh, to establish a proof of ownership and the change log uh, of uh, how it has changed over the years. The promise of blockchain is it's it's very enticing, right? It's very tempting. And uh, in in the old days, mm-hmm. think about a global matrix mm-hmm. of societies that were all affiliated, all the different language barriers, jurisdictional barriers rights that are being owned and controlled, different term, et cetera, et cetera, paper ledgers, young and experienced staff, all the experienced staff, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of corruption in the information being stored or filed and probably a lot of hitches in the reporting of that information with the financial consequences, okay, that that leads to. If you can get a system, which I think blockchain is probably working towards and maybe not quite there yet, which basically encodes that information at source. I know Audley was trying to do this in relation to the sound recordings, but basically... There's the matrix of the information. People do it with photography. People, you know, subscribe or inscribe data in relation to artworks, you know, whether it's names and identifiers or whatever. So you do it in relation to the sound recording, the performance in the sound recording, the producer, all the various writers, the arrangers, the composers, you know, and that should be fairly straightforward if that is then embedded and it can't be unilaterally changed and then is a verified, approved, in simple terms, trusted yeah. transaction... Yeah. And if it's times 10 pence, times 10 pence, then you pay through that money based on the reproduction or the dissemination or the making available, the communication of that right. And that doesn't seem to me to be overly complex. And I think blockchain, I've sort of looked at it and I'm a bit wary of people going, it is the saviour of us all because it won't replace certain things. However, encoded verifiable data, which is accurate, approved by all, transactions are all verified, authorised, Increment paid, I think job done. So what lessons can be learned from the music industry and royalty, how the royalty income systems operate? Um, because it's been completely upended. But then people talk about, I hate that word, inflection point. It's two words, but people, I don't like that. But you know, if, if we are to a situation where, and you were alluding to earlier, tear it all down and start again, like I said, you're going to disenfranchise a lot of people. But actually, if, if a sensible system is in there or set up where, you know, the data is encoded as saying it's all going to be replicated and, and basically broadly disseminated through technology, albeit there will still be some physical formats. But that, I mean, that, that actually, and, and there's greater media penetration through more territories coming online, there's more mobile platforms, there's more access to more mobile platforms. I mean, music is a massive cultural glue. I mean, hugely significant. And I sort of probably fell out of love with it and now fallen back in love with it again, in which case... What are you going to do about the guys who perform it? And they're not just all, with respect, drug-fueled, vain, egocentric lunatics. They're unbelievably creative, talented individuals who, despite all of it, write the soundtrack. So they should be rewarded for that, and not necessarily a pound per play, but certainly a fair, equitable slice of the sound recording revenues and the music publishing revenues that flow from that. Even if there's an ideal scenario of there are no problems with infrastructure, copyrights, data... Uh, it, the problem still comes back to are are creators getting paid enough? Can they actually make a living out of this? Uh, it, like we've seen in Spotify, like they've been uh, growing massively. It's a huge company. I, I love what they do. But however, what are the financials for Spotify, Rahul? <laughs> Roughly. Well, well Spotify, <laughs> like uh, many other music companies, they are technically technically financially not in a profitable state yet. They are, um, no, they are very clearly not at a profitable no, state. <laughs> uh, none of the music companies are. SoundCloud, YouTube, Pandora, uh, Spotify, Deezer. Uh, I, I don't believe
believe they're actually making a profit. Uh, and the reason is like there's there's a lot of licensing fees and uh, right now music has become a uh, a different kind of economy. Like gone are the days where you used to purchase music uh, as CDs as products. Music is seen more as an uh, as a service that you can access uh, the entire library of uh, millions and billions of songs at nine ninety nine a month. I can access anything. It's it's a service that you access rather than a product that you purchase. So w- what does that mean, right? Like uh, you talking about the ownership versus licensing thing, but that, yeah. people have made that transition quite easily, have they not? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're right now. Uh, like to, to to let me put you in the spot here. When was the last? Uh, album you purchased yeah okay that's no, no, I, I can answer that um okay starting from scratch lord yeah michael kiwanuka um imagine dragons surprisingly that was for uh, my son which was yeah. i actually quite enjoyed especially the track thunder uh lana del rey yeah. and of course the ramones is alive which i think i bought about four copies of my life of but it's just because i'm a very big fan of the ramones but yeah no i, th- I think i mean Again, the physical elements, ownership, I get all of that. Um, the reproduction of the artwork, the, the artifact, mm-hmm. the art, I get that. But I do think it's just extraordinary that I can suddenly read an article and go and press a button and then get access to hear that music. It's, it's amazing, it's a, isn't it? Yeah. So I don't like things that are necessarily at the cost of something else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If that music is played, yeah. and I know confidently... Yeah. That a fair return is going to be given yeah. or made back to the creator. Yeah, that's but a that's a win-win. Probably, I mean, I, you say don't doesn't care. Yeah, I don't he, think, he no, think of it no, like no. That. I'm not. I'm not sure that's right. Remember the whole in rainbows thing that Ra- the Radiohead did. Very brave and innovative decision to release um, an album for free through the digital networks, mm-hmm. and it was groundbreaking from the point of view of saying not so much. Um, you know, we've been defeated by technology. It was more a case of saying, we're going to create a body of work and make it available to you. And we want you to put your own value on that. And they did. And apparently it was far more successful than they could ever possibly have imagined. And that indicates, again, probably in a slightly sort of righteous yeah. way, um, that people have got the right approach to not just taking things for nothing. Yeah. You know, artists are influenced they do, without doubt, plagiarise. They do steal. I think even Noel Gallagher went live and said, yeah, of course, you know, we're just a Beatles rip-off band or something. He didn't see something as crass as that. But the reference points and the homage that he was paying was very clear in the audio recordings, the sound recordings he was making. I mean, we've got this, the current um, Lana Del Rey Radiohead spat that it's about to turn very ugly um, because I think there's been a lot of um, either miscommunication or a lack of accurate communication between the various parties. And there's no question at all that when you listen to the Lana Del Rey track, it does sound remarkably similar to Creep. Mm. But then Creep is also credited by, or with two other writers who I think were in the Hollies, who took... Who successfully sued uh, Radiohead in the past. Yeah, but the one I really liked was post the... Yeah, exactly. And they're now credited as writers. So the whole... I set up the Virgin Sample Clearance Department in... Um, Virgin and with Virgin Music when I was there and it was interesting because in the era of hip-hop and then people were licensing you know like Mike Oldfield instrumentals for hip-hop tracks and all the rest of it, it was turned, turned it into like a profit centre but then that's a proper licensed financially agreed mm-hmm. deal whereas to knowingly plagiarise or infringe or lift without consent or permission and also without payment I think that's a real cheat 
The Marvin Gaye um, issue, the Blurred Lines, Robin Thicke, Pharrell Williams um, issue, I think was the right decision. But what I thought was the most interesting repercussion of that was that um, the Mark Ronson, Bruno Mars track, Uptown Funk, without any pressure or without anybody, they, they, they basically co-opted about three or four writers from the Gap Band onto there and credited them as, as writers of Uptown Funk because they knew that somebody had been alerted to potential uh, similarities or infringements and the best way to get around that and to, and to address the p position rightly was to credit the writers and pay them their share of the return. So, like I said, you know, people always continue to use and evolve um, using those assets. But again, it's funny how it's all boiling down to the same thing. Use it, treat it with respect, earn money from it, but don't gouge somebody else in the process. And that includes both parties. You shouldn't be taking for no something for nothing. Insurance uh, shape of you. I think uh, I, I remember. I don't think this, there was a public uh, announcement as such, but uh, uh, I, I think uh, the writers of TLC's uh, famous song they got accredited, and it got settled all under the hood, uh, pretty much, if I remember correctly. Well, that's and, fair. Uh, that's, that's that's good that it does that. And, uh, Nobody wants a protracted legal fight. Yeah, and uh, my uh, in when I was studying. Um, masters in music business my uh, law professor <laughs> he told me uh, uh, in terms of copyright winning the cases of uh, sound like songs or uh, something uh, the question you have to ask is how badly you want to sue that person and how much money do you have and <laughs> there's always an assessment as to the merits of any case and yeah. whether the other person is good for the money yeah. but uh, I think with something like a blatant infringement I think well, certainly various approaches are made and invariably if somebody goes, look, you know, there's two choices. We can either negotiate this and give me a credit moving forward or we'll sue. And again, it, I remember, you know, that whole thing where there's a hit, there's a writ, where there's a name, there's a claim. You know, it, it goes on and on. It's not necessarily bread and butter all the time for lawyers because it's actually quite sad when you see things coming to that stage. But ultimately, if somebody needs to be acknowledged and credited and paid for the work that he's done, then I think he should be properly acknowledged, credited and paid. You know, um, so listen, we've had a chat about a wide range of fairly complex and sometimes controversial issues, which and you've been right in the middle of that. Looking back and where you are now, do you think there's anything that you would have been or done differently? Is there is, is there a particular mistake or decision that you think was wrong that you might have done something differently in a different way at a different time? Besides uh, buying Bitcoin early? <laughs> uh, uh, no, but... Uh, so a uh, funny story how I came to where I am right now. Two years ago, I, I quit my job where I was working uh, uh, as a uh, uh, lead software engineer in Dallas. And I had this uh, uh, vision. I, I just wanted to work in the music industry so bad. I pretty much quit my job and decided uh, I'm going to work for uh, building companies, building startups, uh, specifically focused uh, in the music industry. And it was a, probably one of the most difficult decisions in my career personally because uh, it imposed I was at the peak of my career to kind of like leave all that and start afresh take a huge gamble and move to a different country uh, and pretty much in Europe right uh, across the ocean uh, I sold every single piece of uh, thing that I have I have a extraordinary. My, I have a backpack I have a guitar and uh, a few clothes you know that's all the things that I own right now uh, knowing where I'm right now I absolutely do not regret that decision and i really wished i had actually done that much earlier uh the growth uh, the way i see things uh, 
the world is completely different and i think uh, realizing your passion and having the courage to actually make that leap of faith is such a important thing and such a scary thing at the same time uh, i really wish i had done earlier uh, but i'm uh, i'm in a really good place right now though that is extraordinary um how old are you i am 30 right now yeah okay i'm going to pull rank on you because i'm 54 <laughs> okay but what is there's a common theme there's a common theme here yeah because i've Considered when I asked the question what my mistakes are, mm-hmm. lawyer, lawyers very rarely admit mistakes, which is probably a mistake. They yeah. should admit mistakes far more. Mm-hmm. And because no lawyer knows it all, they can't know it all. But I would say the two that I've identified is that I wish as well that I had probably evolved more quickly, having already seen how quickly everything was evolving. Mm-hmm. So rather than staying in one place, almost like anticipated the, um, the tidal wave, and many in, in, in so many different sectors and evolved as a lawyer more quickly to adapt mm-hmm. and service that or address it mm-hmm. or indeed fight it. Because I think one of the key things for me is um, having a scrap, a well thought out, well considered scrap. But I think lawyers are there for a reason and they're a useful buffer. And if you have an issue, you should sometimes on occasion avail yourself of that legal recourse if you want to potentially make things better. And I wish I'd caused more trouble when I was in the business earlier on because a lot of people were causing trouble and I think they could have been met head on and dealt with. And I think a lot of these things probably would not have become so entrenched if other people had taken issue with the fact that that's not right, that's wrong, that's not right, that's wrong. And tried to, you know, make it a more clear, open and equitable business. But then, you know, I'm probably slightly idealistic. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.